Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Earth News Interviews. I'm Sophia, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dean. Hi, everyone. And our guest today, Professor Grant Henderson. How are you doing today, Grant? Uh, okay. I'm very wordy today. <laughs> Great start. I love it. Well, yeah, thanks for being here. We're really excited to, to have you on our show. We know that your usual place of residence is New Zealand. So how long have you been back in Canada and how's that been for you? Uh, since June 7th. And it's weird because uh, everything in New Zealand is open. So uh, no face masks and there never were face masks required. And you could go anywhere and do anything. And suddenly now I can't do that. So that's a bit strange. Oh, yeah. New Zealand is doing a great job controlling the pandemic. But I think Canada's pretty close behind. We're down to like, I think, 200 new cases a day. So that's good. 200 a day. That was, uh, I think New Zealand had maybe 1,500 cases and only 22 deaths. Uh, how many deaths have there been in Canada? About five or six times that number. Oh, capita? I guess doing good is relative. <laughs> you know? I, I remember reading something on the internet the other day and it was asking people, so of all you people who are not wearing masks, why is it that you're not wearing masks? And the top response was, because I live in New Zealand. I think I saw that somewhere, yeah. So Grant, we mainly know you from our introductory uh, earth science classes. So you've taught mineralogy, you've taught introduction to geochemistry. What's it like teaching those introductory geology courses? The fun. Um, I like teaching the introductory courses. The problem is always a lack of background. Uh, I would say in many cases, they're missing some of the uh, fundamentals that they need to know for the course. Often it's they're missing the chemistry or last year, for example, an introduction to geochemistry, it became clear uh, you needed to know some mineralogy. And so I had to throw that in and then I threw too much of it in. So it's a fine balance between putting in what they need to know, all the sort of extra background stuff that they, they need to know versus the actual content of the course because the more you extraneous stuff you stick in the less time you have for other things but it's fun yeah the chemistry department from my own experience they have two different levels of introductory course so they have the intro to chemistry course if you're going to go into chemistry and then they have an intro to chemistry course for all other programs so if you're going into life sciences or physics or earth sciences or environmental so they have like these kind of, I guess they kind of get like feedback from each of the departments about what they need to have in this intro to chemistry course. And they probably have a difficult time juggling what all of these different departments are saying they need to fit into their first year intro chemistry course. The problem is, I think a lot of the time chemistry departments, or at least our department, thinks thermodynamics is the big thing that you should know some thermodynamics. So first year chemistry often teaches basic thermodynamics. And thermodynamics is very useful, but there are many aspects to chemistry, such as bonding, uh, an understanding of the periodic table, 
why elements do what they do uh, that are unrelated to thermodynamics, which I think are a lot more useful in uh, earth science anyway, to start with. Hmm. So is that what you started with? Like, I just want you kind of to take us through your experience. Ah, okay. So I have always done chemistry all the way through from uh, undergraduate all the way through to my PhD. And I mainly publish in geochemical or mineralogical journals, uh, chemistry journals or physics journals. And in chemistry, I took uh, inorganic chemistry and organic chemistry in first year. I didn't really get any thermodynamics until I took physical chemistry, but I took uh, every sort of chemistry you could possibly think of except organic after. So I dropped organic after first, first year, but I've taken everything from analytical to organometallic to physical to anything you can think of. When did you figure out that you wanted to specialize in your specialty? Actually, first, could you uh, tell us exactly what it is you focus on these days or what you'd spent most of your career researching? Okay, so in the earlier 80s, people wanted to understand uh, the structure of hot molten materials, uh, melt in a magma, and magmas are predominantly melt, so it became a very hot topic. But you can't, in those days, you couldn't really study melts in situ at very high temperatures. And it's not easy to study naturally occurring melts because they're far too chemically complex. And as a result, you, don't, you can't really interpret any results. So one of the easiest things to do was to make simplified melts and then to quench them to a glass. And the idea is the structure of the glass resembles that of the melt just before it uh, solidifies. So it was very um, trendy. So I, I started off on a project to look at iron in melts and that fell through. So then I ended up having to switch my PhD topic after a, I wasted the first two years, I guess. So then I had to switch over after that to look at silicate melts without iron present, but uh, looking at them with other elements substituted in that could you could see the, the effects of the experimental data much better if you substituted a heavier element for one of the light elements. So gallium for aluminum makes a big difference in some of the techniques. And so what I do is actually I use uh, spectroscopy, various uh, techniques at large-scale facilities to look at materials, uh, either glasses or high-temperature melts. I always like things with lots of buttons and flashing lights and sirens and bells going off. So I kind of like it when uh, that, that kind of tech, when the technique involves lots of flashing lights and buzzing and things. And expensive equipment. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the large scale facilities are all over the world. And the, the other thing is you get to uh, collaborate with a bunch of interesting people and you get to go all over the place. We have the Canadian light source in Saskatoon, but, the, you know, we use uh, Spring 8 in Japan. Uh, I use the French Synchrotron Soleil south of Paris quite a lot and the ESRF quite a lot. And I used to use the Advanced Photon source in Chicago early on, but less so now. Uh, and they're fun facilities to go to. If you've never been to one, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you've got to travel all over the world, too. 
Yeah, well, I don't do field work, but I do collaborate a lot with people and travel all over the place and do experiments. One of the things that we also know you from is our trip to Turkey that we went um, during our mineralogy class. That was that was a lot of fun. Well, we're going to do another yeah. episode probably on field trips too, but why are field trips like this really important to teaching? Okay, so my undergraduate degree and master's is in classical geology. And, um, and of course, I went on a lot of field trips as an undergrad around New Zealand to, to see uh, different aspects, either structural, volcanoes, whatever. And although I don't do field work now, and I mainly do experimental work, and some of it quite esoteric compared to the uh, sort of traditional geology fields, I do strongly believe that it's very important if you're in earth science or geology to go and see things out in the field, go and see a pile of rocks, go and see the different geological features in different places. And so the field trips, I would say for many years, the two strongest proponents of field trips in the department were myself and James Brennan, neither of which of us do field work. Uh, We'd be the first ones to organize a field trip. And it's because as a geology student or an earth science student, you need to see the things out in the field. To understand the uh, the nature of earth science to some extent, mm-hmm. and it's fun. It's always nice to take a, a bunch of students, as long as there's no delinquents. Um, <laughs> it can be a, it's a lot of fun. That was me. Dean. Yeah, Dean. Uh, yes, I wasn't. I wasn't referring to anybody, Dean or <laughs> Sophia. Yeah, that's that's a great kind of way to, I guess, springboard into the topic for today, because just like fieldwork is fundamental to earth sciences, the scientific process is fundamental to all of science. And actually, Marshall Brain, the founder of How Stuff Works, said that science is humankind trying to figure out how everything in the universe works. And I mean, if we go back in time, we can picture that famous instance when the apple fell from the tree that Newton was sitting under, which prompted him to discover the force of gravity. And science has been a staple of humankind. We try to explain natural phenomena around us. But today, science looks much different from what it was in Newton's time. So new discoveries are put through the rigorous tests and scientific process, multiple phases of peer reviews that Grant, I'm sure you're very familiar with. And uh, this is done so that any new knowledge is not just blindly accepted, but tried and tested so that we can discern the truth. So in this process, we hope to refine experimental design, diminish bias, and have our results checked by dispassionate peers. So like I mentioned, this process is important to anyone in academia. If you're reading, publishing, or reviewing articles, it's complicated. It takes years for the results of a project to be published in a journal which is the ultimate goal of our researchers. And our guest is no stranger to this process. Uh, He's been privy to every part of the publishing process and is currently finishing a review for the review journal Reviews in Mineralogy and Geochemistry. So we'll talk about everything that goes into this process and maybe get into the nuts and bolts of today's system. But first, Dean will introduce us to the topic with a little topic summary. Dean? Uh, Yeah, so I wanted to talk about scientific journals because... I actually was not aware that there are different kinds of journals. I figured that you just had journals for each field, but I didn't think that they kind of varied in type. So when when I was talking with Grant about what we could talk about, he mentioned that he was surprised that more people didn't know that you had these things called review journals 
where people could get all the latest information on the current research. So I wanted to, to first talk about what the different kinds of papers are and, and the kind of journals that they'll be found in. So the first type of scientific paper would be original research, and this is kind of the bread and butter of, of science, where you make a hypothesis, uh, you collect data, you run tests, you discuss the results, and then you have something called letters or short reports. And these are when a researcher finds something impactful or interesting or maybe time sensitive, and they want to get it out immediately to the wider community. So one, one example of this would be of a journal that does this would be Atmospheric Science Letters. And it's a journal dedicated to these short reports or these letters in atmospheric science. Another type of science paper would be methodology articles, where they highlight a new method or refine an old one. And then the final one would be review articles. And these are comprehensive summaries of a topic. The authors review the original research that has been published, so they're not actually publishing their own data. And they kind of give perspective on what has been uncovered, what questions have mostly been resolved, what new questions have been raised, and they kind of give their perspective on the direction that they think the field is headed. So this kind of gives a little bit of insight for people new in the field and, and gives ideas for new lines of research. And one of the journals that does this kind of stuff is called Reviews in Mineralogy and Geochemistry. And this is something that Grant is currently writing for. So I was hoping, Grant, you could maybe elaborate on why you think that these review journals are underappreciated for grad and undergrad students. Well, in our department, I'm quite, I've mentioned these quite a few times. Uh, there's the Reviews in Mineralogy and Geochemistry volumes and we're currently working on volume 86, which is on magmas, melts, uh, liquids, and glasses. And it's primarily focused on volcanological processes. Uh, and we, I, I did one, uh, volume 78, on spectroscopic methods. And the very first issue was actually done by Steve Scott in the department on sulfide mineralogy. And these things, if you're a graduate student or an undergraduate, are really useful if you want to review the background of, of a topic you're working on or to get sources for papers you're writing or because they're comprehensive overviews of particular subjects. I mean, I just recently read that we have 26 chapters in this latest version, and uh, I just read the chapters on magma rheology fractionation, bubble formation. Each of these chapters focuses on a very specific topic, but it's all important for how magmas uh, move through the continental crust, how they uh, erupt, what sort of eruption styles exist, what sort of gases get dissolved, and, and this kind of thing. So uh, they're very useful. And I'm, in our department, we seem to be particularly weak on realizing these things are out there. And, and it's not just reviews in mineralogy and, and geochemistry. I mean, reviews in modern physics is a, a, a really nice journal if you were interested in sort of a very physics-type topics. And there's lots of review journals out there. On the other end of the scale, you have things like Elements Magazine, which is a relatively new journal that involves all the geochemical societies and mineralogical societies around the world. And you write short five-page papers 
that are intended for graduate students or senior undergraduates. And those two are, are very, very useful. The latest one that I reviewed a paper for was the one on Raman spectroscopy that came out. And while it's very focused on mineralogical applications and doesn't go into a lot of detail about the technique, it would be very useful to people. I mean, I know there's undergrads and doing fourth year theses and grad students doing theses, doing the very things that are described in these chapters. Uh, and again, a lot of people don't seem to know they exist and, and yet they have tremendous amounts of information. So as an undergrad, I feel like the primary readings that I was given was from textbooks, right? And you said that reading reviews and, and journals in general is really important, but could you explain why that is and, and perhaps why that's not reinforced as much in even like junior junior undergraduates and even senior levels? Like I haven't been really assigned that many papers to read. Well, I think in undergraduate courses, you still are trying to learn the basics and the basics are covered in a textbook most of the time. Mm -hmm. These things are a little more advanced, but for example, if I assigned you a seminar to give on uh, looking at uh, identifying mineral phases and meteorites, you would have to, a lot of this is done currently by fingerprinting using Raman spectroscopy. So Raman spectroscopy can look at very small grains in a, in a sample and you can compare the spectrum, the data you get with a library database and it will tell you, yes, it's this mineral which is commonly found in this type of meteorite. So it's very useful for identifying mineral grains. Uh, there are other things you can use it for as well. But it's more specialized than what you necessarily need to know as an undergrad. But if, you, if you're thinking about going to grad school, are there a good source of things to look at that might be of, of areas of interest you want to look at? Some of them are useful for your undergrad courses. Some of them can be go off on a tangent and maybe not be very <laughs> useful, but uh, they, uh, they all cover... And the elements ones, they all cover sort of quite well-known topics, but they do it at a level where you, anybody, even a member of the public picking one of these things up, should be able to understand what they're talking about. Hmm. That's good. And get some idea of how these things are used. So as an undergrad, yeah, your textbooks that, if you can get a decent textbook, you know, I've stopped using one and introduction to geochemistry because I cannot find a decent textbook for the course. So. so in writing these reviews, how does how does that usually get started and how does it differ from one of the more bread and butter types? Do you propose to the journal or do you get invited? Or Yeah, uh, there are a lot of work. All right. A lot depends on um, your co-editors. You usually have a co-editor. So in the RIM-G volume 78, I had three co-editors. I wouldn't say they did anything. I would say I did all the work. <laughs> in the current version, uh, current volume, there are three co-editors. The workload's a little more balanced. For elements, it's very important that you actually get on with the co-editors. And yes, what you have to do uh, for elements, for example, you, right now it's a two-year waiting list to get an issue approved, but you have to write a proposal with proposed authors for the chapters. It has to be approved by the editorial board. 
and you have very, very tight deadlines for that, uh, and you have very tight page limits. And one of the problems with something like elements versus reviews in mineralogy and geochemistry is that elements, the short chapters are very, very difficult to write at a level suitable for non-experts. And so the quality of the chapters may vary depending on who's writing them, but they are very difficult papers to produce simply because it's very difficult writing short articles at a non-scientific level. Now, the reviews in mineralogy and geochemistry, uh, that's slightly different. Uh, you ask, as I said, we have 26 chapters and you get a wide range of responses. You get people who say, yes, they'll do it. And then, of course, the deadline comes and they haven't even thought about what they're going to write. So uh, then they say, oh, I'll have it to you by August. And then August comes around. And of course, they still haven't done anything. Whereas other people write at them and they're done. And here it is instantly. So you have the difficulty of dealing with authors that don't meet deadlines or adhere to deadlines. The chapter content should be an unbiased overview of the field, but Again, uh, depending on the person writing the chapter, it could be just their ideas on something. Now, normally I would write an unbiased review, of, hopefully unbiased review of what I was writing on. This time I was a little bit more selfish in some aspects of the chapter I wrote because I think we are right and everybody else is wrong when it comes to this particular topic. So I spent quite some time in the, to uh, trying to explain why we think we're right about something. But, uh, but they're difficult things to write and they are very, very time consuming because each chapter in the RIMG volume is uh, over 100 pages in a Word file and probably 50, 60 pages in print. And I have to read them more. And uh, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. One of the things that really stands out to me is you have 14 pages of citations. Like, I can't imagine reading through all of that. It just seems so daunting to me. Well, some of the papers are very important. I mean, you don't have all the papers in there. You have to be somewhat selective. Mm -hmm. But, you, mm -hmm. yeah, you've got hundreds of references that you hopefully have read. You should never cite a reference you haven't read, by the way. Mm -hmm. So uh, if it's cited, I've read it. I may have forgotten about it, <laughs> but definitely have read it. You've had it in your mind for at least a minute, you know, while yeah. you're ready. It's important you read the papers because there are in a couple of instances where people have published papers where somebody didn't read the paper and the paper was uh, completely off topic and was more a critique of, say, the funding situation in Canada or something like this, rather than on the topic it was supposed to be on. But because the editor didn't bother reading the original paper submitted, it gets published. And it's completely oh, no. 180 degrees to what they're trying to talk about. Mm. Yeah, you, you have to read them all to make sure that they're coherent and on topic. So Grant, what would be a piece of advice that you would give someone writing a review for the first time? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't do it. Uh, there's a couple of things you got to, I think you really need to watch out for with papers. So you have to read a lot of papers. 
And one of the easiest things you could possibly do is, uh, and this is what I did as an undergrad, we used to get, a, as a grad student, I mean, used to get assigned big lists of papers. Read the abstract introduction and conclusions. That's all. Don't worry about the middle part unless there's something in there that you need to, uh, you would like to know about and you need to go back. But one of the things you've got to watch out for is, particularly in these this day and age, you get papers that actually say things that are important. You get papers that are so full of what I call techno babble that don't say anything. And by the time you get to the end, you go, "That's the, oh, that was a wonderful paper. But if you actually sit down for an hour and think about it, you realize they never actually said anything in the paper. It just sounded good. And you get people who are extremely biased and uh, are really only talking about something that they, they believe in. So it's not very mm -hmm. balanced. So you have, to, um, you have to be convinced that the data is correct, that what they're saying makes sense, it fits in with the concepts of what they're trying to explain and so forth. But there's a lot of papers out there that go off on tangents and that are really don't have a lot of substance to them. And But, you know, if you don't recognize that this paper is sort of out in left field, uh, you might think it's the best thing since sliced bread came along. But uh, <laughs> don't just assume that the paper's correct. Don't assume that their conclusions are correct. Always question everything you see in the paper. But at the end of the day, after you've read a whole bunch of papers on the topic, you can eventually turn around and say, yes, this paper was good. They were providing a balanced view and it, the data seems to be good and they uh, seem to be on the right track or at least their ideas uh, have merit. But too often, I mean, particularly undergrad students, they read something and they believe it's true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've fallen into that trap. Well, even in scientific papers that have been all reviewed and so forth, it doesn't mean to say that it's true, okay? Yeah. You, you get papers out there that are based on nonsense. I was reading an article not too long ago about uh, the number of retractions that happen, and I was actually surprised. There was a lot of papers just from, like, a very small handful of authors. Like, there's there are, there are authors who have, yeah. like, a hundred retractions it should be like three strikes are out. Well, you know, there are people that fabricate data. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people that steal data and make out that it's theirs. Uh, I've had that happen twice. Uh, and uh, I don't have anything to do with the people. I, I was collaborating with an individual and he stole all the data and published it in a journal as his own. Uh, and I had somebody else who asked for some data for a talk and then made out in the talk that it was all their data, <laughs> uh, but was caught out by somebody in the audience saying, nice data of grants you've uh, just talked about. And then, of course, they were very angry because they'd been caught. But people publish fabricated data, they, and a lot of these fast turnaround journals, they are publishing stuff which they really, really have very little data for. And then suddenly at the end, of when they publish the paper, they realize that, yeah, their data doesn't support what they said. So they might end up retracting it. I think, Dean, you might have found that was mainly in medicine that they retracted a lot of these. Medicine was a big one. Yeah. 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 It's kind of more common over there, I would say. Now the medical people are going to yell at me if they listen to this. Why would they listen to this? 
Yeah, good. Exactly. It's a le- hey, I might be famous. Uh, they, uh, they, uh, in earth science, I think it's less common, although you do have to watch out for fabricated data, okay, or data that's been uh, massaged to the point that it's no longer really realistic. So, Grant, I think that maybe the reason why this is happening is because there's this immense pressure in the scientific community to publish new work, especially kind of at the advent of someone's scientific career. In your experience, how do you think this has impacted the quality of work that's been done by, I don't know, maybe your students or or your colleagues? Uh, Well, okay. Let's talk about students for a minute, okay? So I've had two PhD students finish in the last few years. I would say that throughout the years they were working, they would both agree that the commonest comment I made to them is read more, read more, read more. One of the things graduate students don't do enough of is reading and particularly reading outside your field. Often, uh, some of the solutions to your problems have actually been done in physics or chemistry or some other field. And so you need to read uh, very broadly and you need to read a lot of papers when you're doing a thesis. Time and time again, people will, grad students will pick the most common, highly cited paper or somebody's name they recognize and everybody cites this person and they'll cite this paper in their thesis. And it's not really valid. It's been, you know, it may well have been proven to be incorrect or People don't agree with whatever this author published. Uh, But if you haven't read enough, you won't know that. And so you end up with um, not as good a thesis as you should have and perhaps coming to conclusions that are not really valid because you haven't read broad enough all of the material that's been published on stuff. So for a grad student, read lots. Um, In the current situation, one of the problems that's come into it, I think, is the fact that you've got to publish to get funding. And as a result, people are pumping out papers and they're often very superficial. uh, They're looking at numbers. They're looking at statistics like H factors and citation indices. And these things uh, are highly variable and, and you can't really compare the H index for somebody publishing in physics versus the H index for somebody publishing in chemistry versus somebody in earth science. Uh, and even within those fields, you can't compare uh, the H indices. Uh, it has to be comparison with similar people in as very specific areas. You can't just consider H indices for everybody in earth science. By the way, I just want to make it clear the H index is a ratio between the number of papers you put out and then the amount of times that paper has been cited. Right. Now, but there become problems with H indices. For example, most of the papers I publish get almost no citations for five years, and then it zooms up. So if you take the H index uh, now, it may not be particularly high, but then... 10 years down the line, it shoots up because suddenly some paper that got two or three citations now has 100. And it depends on where you publish the paper. I used to get asked quite frequently to publish a paper in special issues of Canadian mineralogists. And one of my 
best papers, I would say, is on the role of titanium in magmas, and it's in Canadian Mineralogist. And it got about 45 citations. But this is in a time when Canadian Mineralogist could only be accessed if you got the journal. There was no online access. There's no electronic access. So 45 citations in a journal, obscure journal, a relatively obscure journal, uh, where you have no access to it unless somebody gives you the paper, is a very high citation rate, all right? So there's all of these other factors that come into it. But with the current environment, there's this awful pressure to, to publish stuff. I would say the papers are becoming less rigorous. The reviewing is becoming less rigorous. And just publishing masses of papers doesn't, while it might be helpful in terms of, you know, these people that look at H indices or things or numbers of papers published, but if you want to make an impact on your field and a name for yourself, you don't have to publish hundreds of papers. You have to publish important papers that people take notice of. That's a much different, more difficult thing to mm-hmm. quantify. Have you ever been an editor yourself? Uh, well, other than for the two elements issues and the um, two rim G ones, no, but associate editor for American Mineralogist for, uh, for several years. What's that like being an editor and the kind of decisions that they have to make? Well, the biggest problem is always getting reviewers for papers. You know, you need to have somebody review the manuscript, but it takes time again. And many, many people, we all lack time, don't want to review papers. And it's a free thing, right? Yeah, you don't get paid for it. And and you have to get reviewers for the manuscript to get it published. Take the RIMG volume. One of the things we've tried to do is if you submitted a chapter for this RIMG volume, we ask you to review one of the other chapters. Well, most of the authors refuse to do it. They don't have time. So one of the things I I review a lot of papers, and that's because I feel it's, it's part of the job. You have to review manuscripts. You may not want to take the time, but somebody has to do it. So finding reviewers is always a very difficult thing. And then many reviewers are very biased or uh, they decide they're going to get back. They don't like the person that uh, submitted the paper uh, and they can create problems. And you get the sort of email arguments going on. Uh, and, and of course, the author can ask that you not send the manuscript to certain people, mm-hmm. which you have to do. Uh, so I generally don't care. Um, although, to give you an example, the first pa- one of the first papers I ever published in American Mineralogist in 1984, the review came back and it said this person should never be allowed to do any research and should not be allowed to publish anything. <laughs> oh, that, yikes. Word. <laughs> but that was, that was the reviewer and the editor in handling the paper, who was a very big name, said, Grant, ignore this idiot. I love this paper. We're publishing it. <laughs> and it got published. But... Be prepared for, for really negative comments, you know, and don't get discouraged. So is that the worst criticism one could receive on their work or, or is there a worse criticism that you can get? 
I think any negative review that's severely negative uh, is bad, uh, but you shouldn't let it discourage you because it's a lot of the time it's persistence. Again, as an example, um, for five years, I used to do atmospheric chemistry at the Environment Service and building numerical models. So we uh, submitted a paper to um, geophysical review letters on the Antarctic ozone hole when it was very popular. And review came back. It was one line. It said, I don't believe any of this. Reject it. Now, that's not a review. That's just a comment. So we said to the editor, this isn't a review. Could we please have a review done of this manuscript? So he sent it off again to the same person, came back with two or three lines this time saying, I don't believe any of this, reject it. So then we uh, literally ripped into the editor because he's not doing his job there. You want a review. It can be extremely negative, but justify your comments that you need to give feedback to the authors. Saying you don't believe something is not grounds to reject a paper. I mean, I've reviewed papers I, I completely disagree with. But as long as the author has backed up what they're saying with references and data, and uh, I, I may think they misinterpreted their data or they've used the wrong references or whatever, but if they've backed up reasonably well their comments and conclusions, even though I disagree with it 100%, it's fine to be published, but don't make negative comments. And if you're a student and you get these negative comments, as I said, just ignore them. Just keep plugging away at it because there's lots of people out there that send nasty comments back. And a lot of the time they just don't want you. You may be contradicting some idea that they uh, have proposed and they just don't want the paper published, right? Uh, right. In which case you send it to uh, go send it out for more reviews. I mean, if five reviews come back, although you never get five reviews, and all of them say the same thing, then then there's a problem, mm -hmm. right? Right. What do you think of the idea of making the authors and the institutions of a submitted paper anonymous to the reviewers? This has been suggested to reduce bias against the authors. I, I don't care because I don't really look at the authors and where they're from. Um, mm -hmm. I just review the paper. All right. And, and a, one of the things I am very sympathetic to, there's a lot of places in the world with very good scientists who have trouble getting things published because they don't have access. Like the University of T Toronto Library System is fantastic. It's one of the best in the world. And we can get any journal we can think of electronically. Well, nearly every journal. Some, some they don't. But, but there are other places in the world they don't have access to libraries. They have very limited experimental setups and, and access to experimental facilities. Yeah, there's still good scientists trying to publish stuff. And uh, so you got to keep that in mind when they send it in. I mean, you don't chuck it out because, you know, it's not on the latest hot trendy topic. You know, so I, maybe some people do that. I just don't look at where they come from and who the authors are. Uh, and I just review the paper. So. I hope more people think like you, Grant. I mean, that's really reassuring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I know I'm supposed to be an old grumpy curmudgeon in the department, but uh, I actually am very open-minded to all of this stuff. So I think we can move on to the final little segment that we like to have, and we like to ask all our guests a couple of fun little questions. So we want to ask, if you weren't an Earth Scientist Grant, who would you have been? 
Well, originally, since I was about 11 years old, I wanted to do a PhD in virology, but I hated botany and biology when I went and zoology when I went to university. Mm -hmm. But in hindsight now, I think I would love to be a forensic pathologist. I would love to cut dead people open and search for clues as to what killed them. Because uh, even now, like I, when, whenever I have the few times I've had uh, surgery on something, I actually always try to convince them to let me watch. I would love to watch <laughs> my own surgery. I think you've been watching too much uh, CSI crime dramas. Well, that, of course, they won't let me. But I think I'd be um, very good at forensic pathology uh, because I am very good at linking what would at first appearance be unrelated bits of data and things. I'm very good at linking them all together and showing that it's all part of a bigger picture. And that's kind of like being a detective or a forensic pathologist. Uh, my question is, if you could solve one scientific mystery in your field or, or any field, really, what would it be? The structure of liquid water. Oh, care to elaborate? Well, you know that funny liquid that comes out of the tap when you turn it on? Mm -hmm. We don't actually know very much about its structure. If it didn't have structure, it'd be a gas, right? But it's a liquid. Right. And when it's solid as an ice, it's a mineral. And it's very easy to understand what the structure is because you have very well-defined crystallographic sites. But as a liquid, liquids are very difficult to uh, probe. And we know a lot about liquid water, but um, I would like to be the person that actually definitively solves that problem. Uh, or even on liquid um, molten SiO2 would be nice uh, to solve that but because we don't know. We know some things, but we don't know the definitive structure. Liquid water is important because we use it for everything, and if you actually knew exactly what the structure was and how it behaved at any moment in time, you could develop all sorts of applications, more so than we have. Well, we'd love to have our tech updated with that once you have it figured out grant let us know <laughs> <laughs> and uh dean would you like to finish off the episode with our quote yes this long history of learning how to not fool ourselves of having utter scientific integrity is i'm sorry to say something that we haven't specifically included in any particular course that i know of we just hope that you've caught it on by osmosis. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. So you have to be very careful about that. And after you've not fooled yourself, it's easy not to fool other scientists. You just have to be honest in a conventional way after that. This is from Richard Feynman in his 1974 Caltech commencement address. I thought that was pretty relevant to part of the scientific process and journals and Thanks, Steve. That was a fantastic quote. And thank you so much to our guest, Professor Grant Anderson. Thanks for being with us today and giving us a lot of insight about the, the scientific and journal process. And I want to say thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you tune in next week for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. Oh, Dean, that's terrible.